All right, everyone, welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Josh, Erica, and we just had our show notes document show. Nighthawk, <laughs> come on, man. Behind the curtain. <laughs> now you no know. No one can see behind the curtain here. Uh, yes, I have to come face the music. Uh, yes, I did share a picture of myself smiling at halftime of the game last night. Yes, the Lions did blow a 17-point lead. And Ouch, Tom. I'm crushed. Yeah, that was rough. I'm You're wearing black. Don't be sad. Up that what's the it's don't be sad that you were there or something be glad that it happened i don't know i need all the positive affirmations i can get today but some other kind of crap that they give to whiners <laughs> to believe in yeah i, I welcome to a, defeat my friend <laughs> i sent out a, a bible quote this morning basically people have been texting me as if i was on the team which is great i'm, I'm glad that people associate me with that but i sent out a bible quote uh romans 534 not only that but we rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does well, not put us go. to shame. And we Pogo going all Pogo. messianic on us there. Pogo's <laughs> like the assistant to the assistant to the assistant head coach for the Detroit Lions. Yep. Mourning his team. Yeah. Wearing black. And I just thought I'd wear the color of his opponent, you know, the yep. red. Real classy, real classy. It's painful. Uh, so while football is fun, we have some other competitions going on and I wish these competitions weren't going on, but they are. So right now our first topic here, we, we got to talk Texas. Texas is having its Alamo moment over its own state sovereignty in its own country, America right now. Their, uh, their governor, governor Abbott, he has a quote basically talking about the authority granted to Texas as a state to defend its own state sovereignty. And basically it's being infringed right now from the executive branch. Uh, Erica, would you like to go in a little bit of the specifics here of, the argument that Texas has that no, indeed, you can't come take this barbed wire from us. You're violating our, our rights. Uh, yeah, I would love to go into this. So January 24th, this is just the end of last week. We just, just missed it for our Thursday recording. Governor Greg Abbott issued this statement from the state of Texas, and it opens thusly. The federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the state's. And he says the executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws on the books right now. And he goes on to just indict President Biden on every count of his duty as the president of the United States. But that opening line there, I was getting major Declaration of Independence vibes. I have to say my first reaction was sort of a gut punch, little wrench in the gut there. This was this is sobering language because it's Abbott, it's the, the governor of the state who has since been joined by 25 other Republican governors. No thanks to you, Vermont, fake Republican governor. <laughs> anyway, he's been, so now we're talking more than half of the governors in the United States pitting themselves or being, acknowledging that they have already been pit against the federal government when it comes to the protection of the borders. And uh, again, very sobering language, talking about the president violating his oath, um, instructing his agencies to ignore federal statutes. And I think the argument, the, the core of the argument here when it comes down to, okay, who's responsible? People are saying, oh, Congress needs to get it together and pass stronger laws, or Congress needs to you know, spend more money on the border and it's all the Republicans' fault. He's saying, no, the president has all of the uh, powers that he needs in order to execute faithfully and to protect our borders. And he's simply not doing it. And yeah, so that was the governor's message. He's like, we're going to continue because you have abdicated your responsibility. We will now step in and defend our state. And like I said, more than half the governors in the U.S. are like, you go for it. Go, Texas. Yeah. And first off, shout out to uh, Adamo. Uh, Texas has already had its Alamo moment. You know the Alamo. Dang it. Uh, live podcasting is tough. Uh, it was an allegory. <laughs> I thought it was Hopefully a good reference. it's not the but... end. The, it doesn't end like the Alamo ended. But uh... have a second moment, I guess. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go with uh, Declaration no, of Independence. It's just Alamo. kind of amazing, though, because normally with this kind of situation, we had the Supreme Court had the opportunity to, to go on and side with Texas in that emergency stay. And the Supreme Court, unfortunately, uh, Amy Coney Barrett did not vo uh, vote the right way. And so the Supreme Court decided not to intervene at that exact moment and allowed the federal government to try to get rid of this uh, razor wire border. But normally, 
normally what would then happen is Republican politicians would just kind of fold over, roll over, pop, just say, well, I'm upset. I'm going to send out a bad press release. And this is just terrible. And I was stunned. I was surprised to see Greg Abbott say, actually, you know what? No, um, we're still going to secure our border because we as Texans have a constitutional duty to protect our own citizens. And the federal government has dropped the ball. They haven't done their duty, but we're going to still do ours and we will still protect our border. I was absolutely amazed that Greg Abbott yeah. just didn't roll over. He did the right thing. And it was awesome to see those other 25 governors show solidarity with Texas and say, you know what? This is a national problem because the, the president of the United States has abdicated his responsibility. In fact, it's treason. Joe, Joe Biden has committed treason. He has not done his duty. He has intentionally let this border become a wide open problem, human human rights violation, a crisis. And the thing is, when he first came in office three years ago, Joe Biden immediately, immediately ended the border emergency. He said, there's no emergency. Well, Title 42, he repealed that. Or I think he let it die out. I think he would have needed to he let it, it. He let it expire, but he... Yeah, I went through he a declared few it was no longer an emergency, though. Yeah. Right. He said it's no longer an emergency. And this is three years ago. This week, we were just uh, calculating. And we have one year to fix it, guys. So come on. Um, if three years ago this week, Biden, he suspended the Remain in Mexico program. Um, which requires so again this is I'm going to go through these but only for the sake of showing that in fact Biden has everything he needs to fix this problem tomorrow right so we had the remain in Mexico program which required the asylum seat applicants to wait their hearings on the other side of the U.S. frontier which is kind of a no-brainer um, he repealed the rule requiring asylum seekers to apply in the countries they pass through before reaching the border instead what we have now are border patrol agents who can't patrol the border because they are caught up in these centers processing asylum claims and they basically just have to release everyone into the interior and say okay show up in two years no one will um he has abused the narrow emergency parole power uh to release and give work permits to over a million illegal aliens i mean it just goes on and on these were all things that we were doing under trump to try and stem the tide and he just refuses to do them he just uh, abrogated them and it's absolutely his responsibility yeah and and two things nighthawk can you pull up a map of the governors that have backed texas it's a really interesting almost like 50 50 split at this point but the map does look pretty interesting when you look at it so that's number one number two is this conversation is so frustrating and i i think how it's been perceived by the average person as well is kind of politics as usual because the way that it's been presented now is well, Biden is ready to come to the table for a border deal. I've seen stuff from, I think Yahoo had an article saying like, he says that this bill will give him the tools that he needs basically to solve problems, which as Erica has brought up, I mean, a complete lie, right? And and, and I saw some people- He has all the, the tools he needs. So yeah. the, the problem to me was people were taking the bait and they're saying, wow, you know, when presented with a solution by Democrats, an opportunity to work together, Republicans are the ones that are just extending this for a political gain, possibly for the 2024 election or new seats or things like that. For anyone that's actually looked at the bill that's been presented, I mean, that's a complete lie. It's just a complete lie. And funny enough, this was another interesting thing that came up over the weekend. Uh, Ron DeSantis, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, put out a video and it, it was a quick video, very short, sweet to the point basically saying Biden has always had the power to do this. He's always had the power through emergency executive order to shut down the border. He just doesn't have the will to do it. And number two, uh, not only would he shut it down, but with this new bill, it would allow 5,000 illegal immigrants to become citizens every day. So 5,000 new Americans every day. I mean, do the math estimate. That's 1.82 million people every, right. every year. Uh, that is just not a tenable. That's in addition to our already very generous immigration law that was passed with Ted Kennedy's support in 1965 that gives one million immigrants a year. So that's like double that, right? And, it's, and it's insane. Not a real. And solution. these are people. Yeah, it's very frustrating because you know, again, it's just one of those cases where you know the Senate Democrats are concocting this you know deal on immigration, as you mentioned, and. James Lankford is a Republican senator from Oklahoma. Oklahoma is 
super conservative state. And they had this guy, James Lankford, who's very, very left wing on immigration. He wants total amnesty. And so he's cooking up this horrible plan with Chuck Schumer and he loves it. And it's like, he's all on board with this. And the Oklahoma GOP is like, what in the world is going on? How do we have a senator from our state who's this far left on immigration? So the Oklahoma GOP passed a resolution just within the last few days condemning James Lankford for this bill. And now Lankford's trying to backpedal and saying, well, border security is national security, but he needs to be kicked out of office. We need to find a, a good conservative out of Oklahoma to, to defeat James Lankford in the primary. He is horrible. And you have other Republicans, like Republican majority, uh, Republican minority leader Mitch McConnell, who doesn't even really care about the immigration issue. I mean, he's pro amnesty for the most part, but he just wants this bill deal passed so that he can get his funding for Ukraine. That's what he cares about. For some reason, he cares more about that than he does about the citizens of his own country. So, yeah, you have this thing where Republicans, not all of them, just a handful of Senate Republicans, though are acting completely at odds with all of their voters. It's bizarre. Thankfully, House Speaker Mike Johnson and the Republicans in the House are standing firm and saying, no deal. We're not doing this. This is terrible. And so, and then Donald Trump on the campaign show, he was saying this on Saturday, he's going to do everything he can to, to nix this deal and oppose it in every way. And he came out strongly against it. He came out strongly in favor of what Texas is doing. And so that was very good to see. And, uh, and I agree with them. This is a horrible deal. We got to stop it. Yeah. And I just to, to give a little more numbers perspective there for those who you know, haven't heard us talk about it in the past, but that 5,000 a number, 5,000 a day number, it seems like now, I mean, right now we're looking at 12, 10 to 12,000 a day. So you you hear the 5,000 and you're like, oh, they're compromising. Like they're, they're going to back up. I mean, 5,000 is way better than 12,000. But remember, under the Obama administration, 1,000 a day felt like too much. It was, it was considered, that was a, a really crisis, bad right. day at the, right. That right. was a crisis at the border. So we're still five times that with this, this is not a deal. Especially, and that's the compromise. Right, right. Right. And I think Josh, you made this point that, you know, Congress can give more money to the president. Congress can, you know, pass another regulation, but if the will isn't there, this is the executive branch's responsibility to Greg Abbott's point. And it's unconscionable that they continue that, that just this, this week was the first time Biden even mentioned, even mentioned the word crisis in connection with the border. So it's just unbelievable. Oh yeah. Good, good article here. Mark Krikorian over at um, Compact Biden's hoarder, border chutzpah. I just like anything that uses the word chutzpah in the title, obviously pro-Israel. Just kidding. That was a joke. Uh, <laughs> but this is a really good analysis of precisely what executive powers already exist and how Biden's administration has just overrun them and said, oh, it's not our fault. This is Congress's job. It's not Congress's job. No. Yeah. Read the Constitution. Just just shoot down pretty immediately if anyone's saying this is politics as usual and it's whatever. It's mm -mm. no. Biden has the power to do this. He doesn't want to do it. You cite this but article, it's not, but it's not like Biden's like, gosh. I don't know what I could do to try to fix this problem. He doesn't consider it a problem. Right. I, I mean, want an open border. They want an influx of lots of illegal immigrants because they think it helps their electoral process. Well, it I mean, does if there's amnesty. Obviously. So. so, I mean, again, this is one of those things where it's you can't expect them like, gosh, they're really sleeping on the job. They know what they're doing and they love this. Like, stop yeah. pretending this is an accident. So there's two things kind of going on simultaneously. One, a lot of people are pointing to the border as a major problem for the Biden re-election campaign, which I think is pretty obvious to domestic voters. But the international story is kind of interesting as well. And so the next thing we have here, unfortunately, uh, we had uh, three Americans, three American troops die. Uh, they were killed by a drone strike that an air defense system failed to pick up. This is over uh, at the Jordan Tower 22. And uh, so first off, pray for the repose of the soul of these three men. I mean, 25 injured, three American troops killed. It's just so hard to see these numbers. Uh, these are someone's sons and daughters, American sons and daughters. So I think immediately what frustrates me is why there, there seems to be a lack of clear purpose of why we're there. I, I know we've had a lot of problem with Afghanistan. I think the point of this Jordan Tower 22 is to be anti-terrorism. But if we're in the region and don't really have the will to do I think what a lot of people are calling for right now is basically bombing Iran, which I think is a bad idea. 
uh, it just seems like we're allowing people to take pot shots at our boys and, and it really make it really frustrates me uh, because this isn't again these aren't elites kids these aren't rich people's kids like these, these are just normal everyday American soldiers that are, are being targeted right now so a lot of questions up in the air how did this happen why did the air defense system fail uh, why are we there uh, Lindsey Graham took the opportunity to basically quickly say we need to bomb Iran immediately which he's been saying now for the last couple months um, any initial thoughts on seeing the story, guys? I mean, Lindsey Graham was like, oh, I'm, I'm having frosted flakes. That's why we need to bomb Iran. You know, like the guy, that's the answer to every question he has. He's like, you know, Iran to Linda S. I mean, he's like Cicero going crazy after every speech. But this 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 attack happened in the far northeastern part of Classical Florida. reference. Hey, classical education. It happened at where... It's not like it happened close to like the River Jordan, even though it happened in Jordan, it happened way up in the upper northeast. Yeah, part. Nighthawk, can we get the map up for it? That was really helpful when I was looking and at this. If you look at the map, you see that it's like super close to Iraq and, and it's right, you know, in the uh, very close to Syria as well. And so, this again, and the Biden administration, yeah, see, there we go. The Biden administration has, has been interested and involved in trying to get us entangled in Syria's sort of civil war. You know, and so this bomb strike, this drone strike happened from the Islamic resi resistance in Iraq, but it, apparently Iran fuels them or funds them. I I don't doubt that. But again, it's just one of the things where it's like, what does this have to do with our national security stake? I mean, it would be one thing if you're saying Israel's a friend, we're protecting them. But what is this? This is look how far away from Israel. Yeah, that can is. you zoom in, Nighthawk? It doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't understand the strategic you know, interest in, in having this base, you know, where our American men and women are serving in that. That just seems a little out, out there, way out yeah, there, an outpost. I did a little digging into So this outpost is there in order. It's sort of a stopping off supply station for another, a larger outpost that is actually inside Syria. And like you said, Josh, just the level of entanglement and proxy wars. What, what really kind of gets me going, I looked this up. We have more than 40,000 U.S. military personnel across the region. If you go, if you consider the Middle East uh, running from like northern Syria down through Iraq, um, and all the way down to Yemen and um, at the Gulf of in the Gulf of Qatar. So it's forty thousand U.S. military personnel committed in a region, and there's there has been no declaration of war. This is again, this is this upside down governance that we have. Congress is supposed to declare war, and this is the executive branch just you know continuing. I guess my 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 biggest issue, other than our constitution, is upside down. My biggest issue is now that we are in this situation, which is really a de facto proxy war with Iran. Now that we're in the situation, what do we do? I mean, it seems like our options are pull everyone out, right? And just, you know, abandon ship, which we know what will happen. Uh, we just saw it in Afghanistan. It was a disaster. Um, we can escalate the war, which is what Lindsey Graham would like to do, and actually engage Iran directly. Or we continue this sort of proxy war thing where, you know, the drone strikes. So we find the little outpost of like 40 guys from the Iran Islamic, whatever, Islamic Iraqi coalition who claim responsibility. We kill them. But we know it wasn't really them. But we don't address the problem. Um, the, the whole thing is just such a mess. I don't really know practically. I don't have a good answer. And uh, that's the most frustrating thing here. This is this has been decades in the making, this sort of morass that we're in in the Middle East. But part of the problem is, you know, we have this representative republic, you know, and we the people are responsible. It's not like we have a king who just goes out there and you know, starts wars or whatever. Presumably, we have this <laughs> constitutional republic. And in order to engage in war, we're supposed to have our representatives, you know, like they, the, there's a process. Right. And those senators would then have to turn to the American people and say, I'm intending on getting us entangled in this war. And we might be like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like such a good idea. And we have this actual public debate where no, citizens don't. get to step up and say, this is all yeah. sure. we don't, I'm not so sure. Oh, I want that's to do what this. he's saying. Yeah. We, yeah. But we don't. So we just have a president that says, yeah, we're going to get involved in Syria now. And you're like, Who's Syria? What is Aleppo? I don't understand. Why are we doing this? Like, that doesn't make sense. Give me a reason. Yeah. But we don't get that. So, 
actually uh, short circuiting our countries in the public. Vivek Ramswamy had a really good point in this, and he's still been kind of doing the media tour even after dropping out and endorsing Trump. But he went on some secular outlets, and he's I mean, he's really fearless, he goes everywhere. But he was talking about the deep state, and people, as soon as they hear that, their brain turns off, right? Because they're thinking QAnon, they're thinking, da, 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 da. and he's like, no, 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 it's actually. It's not like that. And it's easy to explain when you get into it. And he went on to basically say, essentially, and this happens in business as well, but in government, we have a shadow government ran by bureaucrats that are unelected and stay there well beyond presidential terms. And their politicians are literally just the pawns. Like they are the people that they send out um, to go be the public face of the operation. When you were talking about that, Josh, nothing made me think more like this than these war decisions being made by people, anyone but the people, or even the politicians, really. Like the fact that we're this entrenched in the Middle East and making strategic decisions like this, no one's voting on this. No one's saying right, that that's be here. Mm-hmm. Me. And so we I mean that's why people when they say, hey, I'm running to basically slash these bureaucracies. You see it in Argentina right now. Obviously Argentina takes up a different place in society than the United States does on a world level. But that again gets to the problem with war decisions, with economy decisions. Uh, I mean, even small decisions, like if they're not being made by people that you elect, there's no more relationship and accountability. You just have people that are there for 20, 30 years making decisions that aren't on your best interests as people. So that, that's really frustrating to me. It was really good to hear an explanation of it broken down. And the people who he actually was explaining it to like, yeah, that actually makes sense. Like, and that actually does seem like a problem, but I never really got past the initial word deep state. And I, I have always felt like there's more to that. There's been an, a very well done smear campaign against the word, but really we all should be against people that are basically taking away our right to representation through the government. So that's how right, I feel. Because they make decisions that they're not accountable for. Exactly. It's right. just, they just decide. And on they get own. to throw around American lives like they're candy. Like that means nothing to them. These aren't the people like, that are on the front lines. It's right. frustrating when we have bureaucrats decide, oh, you need more fuel efficient cars or you need to have low flush toilets and light bulbs need to be this more energy efficient. We never voted on any of that. And that's frustrating. But this is that much more dangerous because we're talking about our own men and women dying wearing the uniform somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Like why? This is this is why we need to have a go go back to the Constitution. So when we're talking about whether or not we want to go to war, we decide as a nation that we're going to go to war. We vote on it. We discuss it. We debate it. And we vote on it, and then we're in. Instead of just a president deciding unilaterally to do this, didn't we learn this from Iraq that this was a bad idea? But even Iraq, we voted on it. I mean, it was a vote for authorization of force. Oh my god! So often, sure. so often we're doing like with this stuff with Syria, and there's no vote on it. There's no, there's no debate. It just happens. No, it's horrible. We're, we should be we should be out of there. Personal opinion: yeah. there's no reason we should be there. It's, it's going isolationist. That's because. Right. I hate I hate that. Okay, that's a pet peeve of mine. I hate it when people say isolationist. You know, I know you're saying it jokingly, but it's like, you don't want to bomb other countries? You must be an isolationist. <laughs> exactly. Maybe I want to trade with other countries. Point well, taken. What frustrates me about this situation, similar to what frustrates me about Ukraine, which was kind of hilarious to see people draw ideological lines on that. Like it's somehow, uh, because we're talking about real men and women's lives. Like this is a, war is a humongous problem on a personal level for human beings. Where is hell? This isn't like they're just a video game character across the seas. So when we talk about Ukraine, the United States and other countries got involved without the will to finish it. And when they don't have the will to actually finish it or to back up what they say, what ends up happening is we're exhausting Ukrainian lives. Not just, these aren't, this isn't risk. Like these are real human beings that we're allowing to be fodder, cannonball fodder for Russia over something we're not willing to go over war for. That's completely irresponsible and indefensible from a Catholic social teaching perspective. It's ridiculous that we're allowing this. And we have people in the U.S. cheering this on like it's somehow like a like a football game or something. Like we're talking about real people dying over there. So the right. Ukraine thing really frustrates me. And, and it's, it's the same thing with like the Ukraine States. too. Tom, you ever notice this? It It's honestly liberals from the suburbs who are most like pro-war on Iraq. I mean, Ukraine. I mean, it's like it's the most bizarre thing why are they so pro-war? It's like very weird to me. Like I understand how conservatives can be like, well, after 9-11, maybe, you know, Colin Powell and George W. Bush say somehow Iraq is really involved and that was a blunder. And a lot of conservatives have then taken the lesson from that. Like maybe we should be not involved in so many of these foreign wars. That's the lesson that Donald Trump was very big on that. 
And what's happened now is that we got liberals who are like, you know, pounding the drumbeats for war. Well, they used to be why? the people protesting and, like the Vietnam War. They were so, the hippies. So, in the, I, exactly. And, so. and why are they beating the war drums? It's like, well, who, who is Ukraine going against? Is it just some little piddly country? Oh, oh, Russia, which has nukes. Great idea, guys. Like, why don't. Well, I think and I think the thread that ties all of these together, we've got Ukraine, Middle East, back to immigration, uh, you know, the war hawk. I, I think that it, it ties back to the disconnect between the ruling elite and the rest of the world. Like when you say, Tom, these are real lives. These are real people's lives that are being played with. Same with immigration. Right. These are real kids in inner city schools who are being booted to online classes because they're being flooded with immigrants. And I, actually, I wanted to bring this up. This poll came out at the end of last week from Rasmussen, uh, that, that is really an insight into this, but this this poll shows us that uh, America's richest 1% and elites. So we're talking, I think the way that they did elites were people with postgraduate degrees uh, with an income above a certain amount. I mean, so like, you, and they live in, uh, they live in suburban or urban settings to, jo to Josh's point about white liberals, <laughs> but that they overwhelmingly say that they're in favor of food rationing. They're in favor of rationing meat. They're in favor of forcing uh, cars on people. They're in favor of funding the Ukrainian war. And then it gets down to this. This forcing is even electric more- Electric cars. Electric cars, sorry about that. So then, so this gets even more interesting. Well-heeled Ivy League graduates believe that in general, there is too much personal freedom. When you talk about, uh, yeah, Ivy League graduates, 55% of people who graduated um, from uh, Ivy League school, 55% say there is definitely too much personal freedom in the U.S. And another 30% think that we might have it about right, but they're not sure uh, <laughs> about personal freedoms. And again, it's these people who they are insulated from the effects of government policies that that force these things on people. They're insulated from it because they can afford to, to ride out a, a COVID pandemic and all of those regulations and still be making money. They can afford to get their kids a private education if the public school is full of illegal migrants in the gym. And this they're totally insulated they don't from the, GI Bill. the effects of how they vote. It doesn't affect them. It doesn't right. affect them if Walgreens shuts, uh, puts locks on everything in the store because they don't shop in those. They don't shop at Walgreens. What's Walgreens? And they don't care about crime until their car gets smashed in. They're so <laughs> selfish. Yeah, no, I, I, I get all this. Uh, but so Adamo, shout out Adamo. He's been in the chat for a while. Oh, but hey, he, he, he makes the point here. This happens because we've been weak in the face of clear male actors. The problem with this isn't that we were there, but that we were attacked. If we don't respond with force, it will happen again. And I've been thinking about this because a lot of people like to juxtapose uh, President Trump's time in office with President Biden's time in office. And I even like to go a little further back to President Obama because I remember that as well. But I remember distinctly the Syrian red line talk. Do you remember this, Mercer? Like there's a red line that will not be crossed. And then Obama just completely <laughs> allowed them to cross over, dance in the line. Right. Dance on on the line. It. it did nothing. I mean, there was no response at all. So to, to Adamo's point, line. you can't like I'm not. I think even being there is a sign that you need to have basically the willpower to finish out threats. And mm -hmm. America has lacked that willpower for such a long time. And even maybe the moral clarity to make actions like that, which I totally understand, which is why I'm saying we definitely should not be there. Like if we, unless we, and this is the Trump thing too. I, I think the biggest difference with Trump was he was, he brought the Saudis to the table and whether you agree with, Saudi's treatments of human rights, which of course are objectionable. Uh, he, we had a time of peace in the Middle East that we haven't seen neither in the Obama administration, but also definitely not during the Biden administration. Wait, so these Muslim countries recognizing Israel it was crazy. Yeah, was it's just, unbelievable. Yeah, I just my my main point is we should definitely be hesitant with American lives, and we should sure. not make threats that we're not willing to carry out on. And I don't think we should be making serious threats in. To, to begin with, of course, operate from a position of strength, but it just frustrates me. Well, to, to, to echo what he was saying, though, is maybe what you do is you don't immediately leave. Maybe you decide quietly, like maybe we shouldn't be overextended like this. And you make a decision in a few months to, to maybe move your troops out of that kind of area. But in the short term, you find out who's responsible for this attack and you take them out, you know, mm -hmm. track them down, blow them up. 
We come after our boys, we're going to take you out. And then, you know, a few months later, kind of make sure you're not overextended in, in, in areas maybe you shouldn't be. Yeah. Hey, shout out to Mitchell Godfrey, too. He says everyone should take the Hillsdale course. It's free titled American Foreign Policy. I think I just got my roadmap for maternity leave. <laughs> I'm totally going to spend the nights nursing and taking American foreign policy. I'm you're pumped. Probably, Thanks, Mitchell. I think you're probably in the 1% on that one, Erica. I don't know if many oh. people use maternity leave for that, but I'm proud that you do. It makes you special. <laughs> uh, so uh, Josh had a piece he was excited to talk about here at Nighthawk. If you want to pull it up, it's the Axios piece. Uh, so it was a piece basically about how Trump's 2024 campaign will be different. And uh, if anyone was watching previous episodes, Catholic Vote did indeed endorse Donald Trump in the Republican primary, which was met with many strong emotions. However, uh, one thing that this article revealed, and then I actually uh, had the pleasure of doing an interview with a former ambassador uh, from the U.S. to Portugal. He worked on the Trump campaign. He's actually still working on the Trump campaign. And he gave me the same story. Something is very different about this campaign compared to the 2016 campaign. And Josh had some things that he'd like to talk about here. Yeah, I mean, even the 2020 campaign, but the 2016 Trump campaign, especially completely, totally disorganized those guys. And they and they acted like they were magicians or whatever. And what happened was Trump was catch. He caught lightning in a bottle and he spoke to the moment where voters were in 2016 and the and MSNBC and CNN put him on TV round the clock because they thought no one's going to believe this stuff. This is going to be so damaging. Can you believe he's saying this? And so they just put him on all the time and Americans are watching him and going, yeah, gosh, I don't know. I kind of, I think he's got a point there. And so the lesson the media learned from that was, gosh, maybe we shouldn't give him millions of dollars of free uh, advertising, free money, uh, air, airtight that. But so what happened now is Donald Trump is running a completely and totally different campaign. I mean, absolute chaos in 2016 to this very buttoned up, well-managed, disciplined presidential campaign. Axios has got the details on it. We can share it in the show notes. Um, the campaign managers that they have now, this operation is smooth. They they know exactly what they're doing. They have a whole machine in place for all these different People running for Congress, running for Senate, running for legislature even. You want to get Trump's endorsement? Okay, you you endorse Trump and then he can endorse you and all this stuff. It's actually act, acting like a, a well-oiled presidential campaign. And it's it's shown quite the big a difference. The thing the media noticed was like in Iowa. So when they had the Iowa caucuses, they had these special gold-trimmed you know, hats that show you know, I'm a precinct captain or whatever. And they gave it out to the people who would represent Trump at each of these caucuses. And it was like, you know, a status symbol. And they, they kept talking about how, you know, Trump is a guy who used to, you know, own all these hotels and he understands the hospitality industry and he understands about, you know, rewarding people who are on his side. So this whole argument goes, uh, this whole article talks about how uh, Susie Wiles and uh, Chris Labasita. Just running a absolute tight ship, and it shows they're much, much stronger position. You know, a year ago, people thought coming off of the 2022 midterms that there was a, it was going to be a, a two man race that it was going to be very strong competitor from Ron DeSantis, but um, because of the the decision that Trump made to hire these two people to run his campaign. He is in a much more powerful position politically than anyone thought possible a year ago. Yeah. I, and that the ambassador, his name was George Glass. I was talking to him. And what was interesting about my conversations with him was, one, he kind of revealed a way to look at Trump that I hadn't thought about uh, when he was talking about how he interacts with the media. And of course, everyone sees the highlight tape of you know what's going on. But he said like two things he said to him. One. I am a New York city street brawler. Like if someone calls me a name, I'm calling them a name right back. Like there's there, I will not hold back. I'm always going to throw punches. That's never going to change. Number two, I always respond in kind, which I was like, that, that actually kind of gave me pause. It's like if someone calls me uh, a name, I will call them a name. If someone has a substantial argument or whatever, when he's sitting with down with them in person, he'll actually respond to the argument. He matches the tone that's given to him. He's like, watch you watch. 
it, this will break people's brains. People are not used to being spoken to, especially media personalities are not used to being spoken to the way that they get to speak to other people because the microphone's one way. And I was like, that is a, I mean, I, obviously you see the success, uh, it worked, but I was like, man. And, not, and then I started kind of looking at some of Trump's commentary like that. Like that is, that is an interesting thing. But in terms of a, an international scale as well, he was talking about being an ambassador and what every country wants is access to the president. And at first I asked him like, so is, is, uh, was the international community kind of scared when Trump got into office? You know, everyone was hearing the names and they're hearing what I was talking about in the media. What were they thinking? It's like, yeah, honestly, people were nervous at first. And then as soon as stuff started getting done in Portugal, they were the biggest fans ever. And I was like, Get that is a really done. interesting way to think about Get this. stuff done. So apparently what he did was he appointed, uh, instead of appointing politicians or bureaucrats to uh, ambassadorships, he appointed business leaders. So he took this guy, George Glass, he was a, a former business owner to Portugal. Another guy was a major, I think, Citibank executive. And he said he sent them out to negotiate. So he said one of his biggest things was getting people to add to NATO. And he's like, I need people to add their contributions to NATO. America's taking too much of that burden. And he said, all right, increase your right. contribution by X percent. And he came up with the percent right. himself. He's like, you're going to increase by this much. All the business leaders went out and said, hey, I do this for a living. This is easy. I can negotiate like no problem. And sure enough, you know, NATO got through. So it's it was interesting. Yeah, that was a huge thing. Na those NATO mm -hmm. partners only did like one and a half percent of their budget would go for, to, to NATO. And now it's up to three. So because we ended up carrying a lot more of the burden because they just were like, whatever, the U.S. will pay for it. Yeah. So a lot of things like that. And and when I think about how this campaign will be different, there's a lot of people I think let them down. And I know people have strong parts thoughts about this as well, but probably the Sidney Powell's and uh, the Rudy Giuliani's that really just went off the rails there uh, towards the end. And it seems like, I, I wonder if this is to me putting together seasoned campaign professionals like this, putting together a crack team is like the adults in the room and the real people that get things done are like Trump is truly our only hope here. And we need to get behind the wagon, get on the team and make, we cannot have Biden be president again. And so now maybe that's yeah. the inspiration maybe to get it going, but I'm seeing much different from Trump. Right after 2020, when the whole debacle of, you know, how close those votes were, Donald Trump was willing to listen to whoever told him what he wanted to hear. So Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, that kind of stuff. Now, with these campaign managers that I'm talking about, Susie Wiles and um, Lava Basita, what's going on here now is he actually wants people who understand how to win the game. And so these guys are masterminds on all the different rules in the different states for you know the allocation of delegates to the Republican National Convention. Because some, you know, the earlier states are proportional. So, you know, the number of, like, for example, uh, in 2016, Trump and uh, Cruz and Marco Rubio were all super close to each other in Iowa. And the number of delegates that was won was not that much different. It was like seven, eight or nine. It sounds kind of obscure. But then as you get to other states, then you start to realize, no, you need to start racking up these wins because it'll turn out to be instead of proportionate, winner take all. That's why you need campaign managers who are keeping their eye on the on the prize. How do you actually get out there and win? And because some states are like Nevada, they're caucuses and they sometimes they, you know, they have these obscure rules for how they allocate their delegates. These guys running Trump's campaign absolutely understand how, what it takes to, to actually put the points on the board, win those delegates. And they're they're doing great. They're in, they're doing a great job. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. All right. So now we move on. We have a, a little bit of church news. here. <laughs> What, Erica, what did your, I think you said your mom or someone had something to say about oh, the coverage? Oh, man, I'm not going to call my mom on this. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just um, people, people expressed concern to me that we were perhaps uh, skirting with scandal and, you know, all of the, we're, we're, we're towing the line. And uh, I just want to say. They didn't like my tweet? They didn't like wait, my tweet. They, <laughs> they didn't like your tweet. Is the tweet going up, Pogo? Oh, man. Oh, no, I'm saving it. It was a good one. It was You'll good. Okay, okay. We're going to save. Got it. Um, yeah. So the point is, the scandal Candles coming, unfortunately, I, at this point from the Holy Father himself. He gave another off-the-cuff interview, which was just she not asked. helpful. Yeah, in which he suggested a two-state solution for the Middle East. Which I, I'm just like, what is this? We're in 1980. No. And then 
He goes into fiducia again. Remember, do we all remember how in fiducia supplicans, fiducia fabulosa, it says there will be no further commentary on this document because this is the <laughs> final word. I'm like, guys, oh, just I shut up that. already. I remember that. That was back in December. Yeah, that, well, here we that, had another interview. Like three days, I think. <laughs> yeah, we had another clarification. And in this one, he go, he's talking about the church in Africa. Oh, yeah. He says, regarding criticisms of the document, Francis noted that, quote, those who vehemently protest belong to a small ideological group. And I'm like, oh, you mean the entire Orthodox Church, all the Eastern Rite churches, most of the bishops from all the continents? And then he goes, but don't worry about that to African church. You know, Africa is a special case because for them... Note the moral relativism. Homosexuality is something ugly. They don't tolerate it. Ah. So those special little dark Africans, got to forgive them. Well, for apparently not... believe in Catholicism. Oh, I know. Wait, they're actually <laughs> we'll believe that reading sin is church ugly. doctrine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, my goodness. Night, Nighthawk, Nighthawk. Was... Pull, pull up my tweet on that. Um, okay. Thanks, Nighthawk. This it, is a good one. This is a good one. It was a good summary of the both paragraphs, but uh, not only. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm gonna wait on the tweet, but again, just it's, out it's, of touch. Out I don't, of touch. Every time he ever steps foot on an airplane and does an interview or just gives off the cuff of cards, it just it's always the worst possible. Like, why can't we just just no talking on airplanes rule? I think for Pope Francis would be great. Yeah. Um and I, I, I spent got, yeah, here we go. Yeah, here it comes. I spent 10 years of this pontificate saying things like, Well, he was on the airplane and maybe he his advisors just didn't inform him of the full scope of blah blah blah. I, like at this point, I'm kind of done with this. You can't keep giving like, them. Yeah. So Scott, I, here. I'm like, come on. Can we have a rule? Future popes will not say anything on airplanes and will not be Jesuit. Could that just is that asking? How for about too they much? just go back into the Vatican, like pre-Pope so, Paul VI, like Eric, I, I have tiaras and they here. don't talk. So the, okay, the quote is, it. of course, after saying we're not going to talk about it anymore, we have, quote, regarding criticisms mm -hmm. of fiducia supplicans, the Pope noted that those who ve vehemently protest belong to small ideological groups, a.k.a. half the church, I guess. Oh, wait, Tom, I got a question. Yeah. Those people who belong to the small ideological groups, are they, um, would, would, would the Pope declare them to be objectively disordered? Well, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> your theology is objectively disordered. but but That's describing me. the church in africa as quote a special case quote for them homosexuality is something ugly from a cultural point of view you know what's different uh, about africa is that the bishops there believe it that's yeah, different. they believe in Jesus. They, no, they don't believe it. They believe what's taught in the catechism. So I don't understand right. why the Pope is just singling out these Africans as too simple-minded to understand what the catechism itself takes. And I've seen so much talk online about like, it's not hard to understand blessing uh, individuals is so different than blessing couples. We've always been able to bless individuals. Why come out with an entire divisive document saying exactly the opposite and then claim like it's just such gaslighting at this point? I don't understand. Yeah. It's bloviating. It's gaslighting. Like we keep bringing it up because it keeps. But happening. it's not just I Africa. No I about. mean, there are priests and bishops in the United States are, and even France. Remember France? They're like even France. What? All the French bishops. Which was just a happy surprise. <laughs> oh man, the Jesuits yeah. are back. What's, Honestly, uh, I think the small the small ideological group are the people in the church, like Father James Martin, who are pushing yeah. this LGBT trans agenda. That's the small they, ideological group, and they've got the it. microphone. They've, they've got, got the, the microphone the here. Yeah, and yeah. then do do we all need to pre Twilight Zone need to sit and watch uh, the video of New York City taking down Thomas Jefferson together, and just have a moment of silence? Oh, it's gonna make me cry, but I guess so. For those who haven't seen Nighthawk, we gotta pull us up one. Gotta pull yeah. us one up as well. So New the York iconoclasts. City. Yeah. Oh man. Moment of silence on an audio podcast. You know, this hurts, and I'm not gonna be silent. This hurts, but President Trump warned us about this. He did. Discussion indeed. of Charlottesville, and the media lied through their teeth. And President Biden continues to lie about that because he right. said, you know, if you take down the Confederate stuff, you take down the flag, you take down Confederate soldiers and all that other stuff, you start with that. But then what's to stop you from taking down Washington or Jefferson? They own slaves, you know, mm -hmm. correct. And people are like, what are you talking about? We would never do that. Wait 10 more minutes and we'll do it then. 
Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And this was not the only iconoclastic moment. I just have to say, um, People's Republic of Massachusetts, Soviet Socialists of the North, um, they also decided this weekend to erase history. We had a town in Massachusetts say they're going to take down problematic historic signs. Uh, and this is in Concord. This is like the birthplace of the revolution. Do you guys know Paul Revere's ride? You should know oh, Paul yeah. Revere's ride. Yeah. So Paul Revere's ride, this is the home, the Lexington and Concord, the battle that starts yes. the Revolutionary Patriots War. And, and they're taking down their historical markers. Now, those of you who don't live in New England, we love our historical markers. They are like every quarter mile, there's a historical marker about like somebody's mill on the pond and something happened. And so taking these down, they're just like, we don't want to remember this history. This is not worthy of it. And yeah, so the, the iconoclasm continues up here in the Puritan North. Flee, flee for your lives, everyone. My life. Well, that's, the, that's the real, the, back to what Josh said, though, if I could, this this all to me stems from Robert E. Lee, like the conversation around Robert, Robert E. Lee. Back when you could make good faith arguments about, you know, for or against, that's one thing. But as soon as you got into let's tear it all down and move on, it doesn't surprise me we're getting back to the origins of America on the East Coast. But by all accounts, Robert E. Lee, Mexican-American war hero, West Point graduate, friend of uh, of many in armies, generally considered the, the most general, gentlemanly and successful uh, general at that time, of course, fighting for the South. But he actually had many, you can debate about his progressive at the time views of the dignity of black people, much more than a lot of union people at the time. And sure, he was actually whatever, given a place of honor by the soldiers uh, of the North after he uh, retreated or not retreated after he surrendered because he didn't want to draw a bloody, bloody um, conflict. So I, I think it was dumb that every president Lincoln, down. was he stupid? Was he wrong to say with malice toward none? He wanted to end the war and do it with dignity mm -hmm. and to consider them back in fold. We are one nation. Now we are all brothers and sisters together here. And that's the problem with this kind of stuff. How how do you take down these statues if you honestly love your country? If you do love your country, why would you do that? Right. And so, like, it's that's why I've always said with January six, <clears throat> it was always, the Democrats love that because that's the that's the day they get to say we're the patriotic ones who love the Constitution and the rule of law in America, and you're the ones who hate, you know, the Constitution and you hate. Um, the country of America and we're the ones who are patriot and then every other day of the year they're the ones taking down these statues like well what what's going on here such a good point because it, it makes me think about the rhetoric especially coming out of the Biden administration of like half the country being a Nazi how different that is from Abraham Lincoln malice towards none it's like we've labeled half our country brothers and sisters. we've even gotten so, criticism to New York City what New York City is going to take down the Thomas Jefferson statue if they were given a choice, would they blow up Mount Rushmore? Absolutely. It's probably not far off, I'd imagine. Um, the only thing saving Mount Rushmore is it's in the Dakotas. That's about it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anne-Marie Sullivan. George Orwell <laughs> was a few years before his time, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, Shout out, Anne-Marie. <laughs> All right. We got Twilight Zone now. Erica, you're up first. Oh, hey. All right. Well, I'm going to go. I was going to go dark, but I'm actually going to go with uh, Barbie. Barbie the movie. Snubbed. You, you, you're a big Barbie fan? Did you like it? No, I'm not a big Barbie fan. <laughs> Michael Knowles, you're wrong. Just want to say that. <laughs> I'm more on the Ben Shapiro side of things. But yeah, so um, Ryan Ryan Gosling, who played Ken, of course, in the movie, he, he got an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Meanwhile, director Greta Gerwig and star Margot Robbie were not nominated for Oscars. But don't worry, Hillary Clinton had words of comfort for Greta and Margot. She writes, while it can sting to win the box office but not take home the gold. Okay, it's still 2016 for Hillary. She has not moved on. He's a little more therapy, a little more leather couch. Your millions of fans wow. love you. You were both so much more than enough. Okay, and here's, I just have to go off for a minute on my beef. <laughs> Michael Knowles is trying to convince me 
that this is like a conservative movie because in the end Barbie goes in like the final scene, spoiler alert, she visits her gynecologist. So somehow this is a sign that she's now pronatalist Barbie or something like that. But the problem is what is getting picked up on <laughs> by all the people actually watching the movie is not Barbie going to the gynecologist because now she wants to be a mom. But the monologue, this is what the New York Times had their big op-ed about how awesome this was. The monologue by Gloria who in the middle of the movie goes on this riff about how horrible it is to be a woman and how the system is rigged against us. And she says, Aussie the fact. system is rigged. Yeah. You have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail. And then she goes on and on. It's like three minutes. You don't feel this. like that. I don't feel like this. Look yeah. like I'm going to, I'm maybe I'm privileged in my, womanhood here because Maybe. i'm surrounded by guys like you but yeah this is true by ken's okay. tens. right and i just Don't have to point out Ken, too <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> in the movie there's ugly barbie and so me i don't never Dang. mind there's no ugly ken though no, let's not go too deep into that all right that. Erica, don't, go don't you think though i think people kind of took the bait a little bit on no barbie get that off like the conservative screen oh, liberal. look at that headline Sorry, I'm sorry, Pogo. <laughs> the conservative liberal Triggered. argument was kind of dumb. I thought, like, can't we just? This is just a movie made about dolls, and maybe this is just how my brain works. But all the Ken memes were phenomenal. I mean, <laughs> okay, Chad, Ryan Gosling dancing, is like, yes, really he's good. an Oscar because yeah. it was he hilarious. Does. And he's yeah, he's he's memeable. He's totally memeable. So that was but my I take think the whole thing. Yeah, I don't think it's just a harmless thing. I mean, people said this about all the sitcoms in the 90s, like Friends, Sex in the City. Oh, it's just all harmless. It's all harmless. The problem is that these moms are bringing their 8 to 12-year-old girls to watch this movie because mom has this, like, nostalgia she has to feed, and she's going to stuff stuff it into her daughter. And they bring their little girls to this. They hear this these words over and over again about how everything is rigged against women. And what is that? Okay, if you're if you're doing cognitive behavioral therapy with someone who's depressed, which most American teenage girls who are white and liberal are, see the stats, I will put that in the show notes, telling them that everything's against them, they are victims, is the exact opposite of what they should be hearing. So this is just, I think that Barbie is just perpetuating these, for lack of a better word, disempowering thought patterns. And it's frustrating. I think it's a stinky movie. Michael Knowles is wrong. Period. That's my. I mean, take. that's kind of obvious. It's kind of why would anyone want to go see this movie? I never yeah. see movies anyway. Nostalgia. It's all take. this like who's got time or money for that? Millennial misery loves company. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. And memes. All I remember thinking about the movie is oh, Margot Margot Robbie's going to be Barbie. Not a shock. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think uh, cast stunning and well. brave. Stunning and brave. All right. Uh, my Twilight Zone. So this is where Mercer's tweet gets featured. So I, uh, <laughs> should I start with the tweet? I don't know. This is pretty good. Uh, Nighthawk, can you pull up the tweet? <laughs> yeah. So uh, over the, it was past weekend, two very different things happened inside the U.S. Capitol in recent weeks. A congressional staffer had sex in a Senate hearing room and the first traditional Latin mass was celebrated. Guess which one the Jesuits spoke out against? <laughs> Josh, that was really, that was inspired. Chef's kiss. That was inspired. Oh, Josh is now an influencer. Uh, yeah. Congratulations! Uh, so, uh, Nighthawk, if you can pull up the uh, the America Mag article about the illicit Latin Mass held in the U.S. Capitol. <laughs> so yeah, illicit. The headline we itself was ridiculous. I yeah, mean, we were privy to some knowledge on that there would be a Latin Mass celebrated in the U.S. Capitol. The first. Uh, Latin Mass celebrated in the U.S. Capitol, and That's it was right. on the same day that the FBI's alleged anti-Catholic, even the art, even the header, alleged anti-Catholic bias. Right, right. So they did this. Guys. Thomas getting it on the one-year anniversary of the release of the Richmond Memo. Mm -hmm. That memo that explained how the Feds, the FBI, were looking into these crazy Catholics who go to traditional masses. So we thought, hey traditional not my idea but some of these catholics are like why don't we have a traditional latin mass inside the u.s capitol and i thought that was pretty cool <clears throat> and of course america which is the jesuit magazine freaked out about it and so they had the we, headline illicit mass we get a shout out at the in the end of the article we totally do and they yeah, spell so, our look, name wrong. Right, right there on the screen if you zoom in you can see the reporter's name there michael l lachlan he's uh 
He's a gay journalist with America Magazine. He used to write for The Advocate, which is a, a gay magazine. It's not like a gay Catholic thing. or It's like literally it's been around for 30, 40 years. This guy, super left wing, super into the LGBT agenda. And so he decides to write his article complaining that there was an illicit Latin mass. And he makes yeah. make sure that his readers know, according to uh, our, you know Cardinal Gregory, there's only three places you should legally be allowed to do the Latin mass in the entire Licitly. city of Washington. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. TC. TC uh, wasn't having that. So, yeah, it was interesting. It, it was kind of funny. You get both ends of the criticism. Some were the people that are like, like the Jesuits. And then there was a lot of mega trads that were mad that it was celebrated there because they were like, didn't have the right cloth. They didn't have the right this and that. Right. So it just seems <laughs> on like a just, folding table. You're like, guys. Yeah, it angered everyone. Like everyone was uh, mad about it. No, you're doing really, something right. Everyone missed the message. Yeah, we'll talk about like right over the target. Um, so yeah, uh, <laughs> I thought that was worthy of Twilight's unmentioned. I can I just say one other thing about the journalism quality in that American. <laughs> so in order to yeah, in order to debunk the idea that the Richmond memo even meant anything, the only people they quoted were actually F the FBI itself in its own uh, explanation. Genius. I'm like, well, guys, <laughs> you can trust them. Yeah. yeah, this is definitely legit. Trust us, we didn't do anything wrong. FBI licit, mass illicit. Yeah, what Maybe up, this reporter what could write about channel, Watergate. Yeah. Maybe the, the reporter could write about Watergate and then just interview sources in the Nixon White House. <laughs> oh, we did nothing wrong. Yeah, and uh, to, to round out the Twilight Zone, uh, yes, the, the Lions did lose yesterday. Yes, it crushed my heart and soul. But we will be back. And everyone loves you know criticizing from outside the arena. It was fun watching my NFC opponents you know, throw stones, but guess what? You weren't in the arena and we were, and we'll be back and we're going to have record dominance the next couple of years. So we'll be back. Anyway. That's your twilight zone. Yep. That's literally your twilight zone. Yep. I oh. rounded it out. That was a personal section. Oh, okay. Okay. I see. That's good. Josh. Part of your healing. No, process. a Nighthawk. Come on. That's what happens when the guy behind the screen is from California. He throws oh, this up. Right. Yeah, this is. This is rigged. I don't know. Nighthawk. I mean, I, I don't know. If, hopefully Nighthawk doesn't Nighthawk. have access to the picture I sent at halftime when we were up 24-7. It was just a big smile on my face. And it just aged horribly. Um, yeah. But that's life, you know, in the words of Frank Sinatra. That's life. No, actually, yeah. trust me. I'm, I'm a Vikings fan, so I know about the pain and the hurt. Because at one time, during the, I was watching the game, the Lions game. Yeah, the championship game and Fox was celebrating. This is 30 years of having the NFC championship game. And they had four photos on the screen and two of them were Vikings games, which they lost. Yeah. You know, Brett Favre, Ouch. when he was a Viking for like 10 minutes and he lost. And then the kick against the Falcons. That's <laughs> still sore. Guy was perfect all season. And then he biffs an easy. Yeah, we know, shot. we know pain. What has touched us to the Super Bowl? but I'm not mad. I didn't throw things in my dorm room. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, my Twilight yeah. Zone, Cecile Richards, uh, former CEO of Planned Parenthood, uh, she actually has brain cancer, and uh, we pray for her. We would we want her to be cured, even though she's actually spending every day trying to advocate for more killing of babies that, <laughs> as Christians, we want... We want all people to be healed. We want people to see the light and, and love of Jesus Christ. You know, we would love for her to repent someday. But she, despite having brain cancer, is not giving up. She is fighting every day for more and more abortion. And she's using all the same um, baloney talking points that everyone else on the left is using. But I did want to point out this. <clears throat> so brain cancer is not stopping her death march. Her her advocacy for, for the bloodlust of abortion. But she made this comment speaking about the way that the political debate and, and abortion is going on right now. She said, and look at the Republicans. They are running and hiding on this issue. I don't think that's just her wishful thinking. I think she's got a point there. I think there are a lot of Republican office holders across the country who are kind of terrified by this issue. They know that a lot of single women are voting, they're Taylor Swift fans, and they're voting 
for Democrats because of the abortion issue. And they don't maybe vote as, as often as they, as they usually do. But now because Roe being overturned, they're more energized. And so that has a lot of Republican lawmakers terrified. But the fact is, <clears throat> that just means we got to get out there, all of us, and work harder and explain what's going on on this issue and say why abortion isn't the answer. Uh, but at the end of the yeah. day, Christ told us to to pray, uh, and we do. We pray for people. But Cecile, at the end of the day, isn't our enemy. The, the enemy is Satan. And unfortunately, she's supporting a very wicked agenda, and I hope she repents. But I certainly don't wish, I mean, ill of her or anyone. Yeah, it just seems like the real twilight zone is that this woman who is, literally is dying from brain cancer has the strength to continue to beat the abortion drum when we have men with full facilities in office that we elected there don't have the spine to be pro-life. That's right. right. Did I put a nail on the head there? Or shy for, yeah, that's it. Nailed it. Shy for the issue. Yes. Totally true. Yeah. Anyway, uh, before anyone gets any, any more lion's digs, I'm going to end it. Uh, if you would like to support the program, subscribe like this uh, reviews, Apple podcast, Spotify, uh, if you want to talk to me, Lukecast at catholicvote.org, email in. I got a lot of emails about the Trump email. I'm still working through, <laughs> still working through the Trump <laughs> ones. Um, those will be fun to go through. But uh, until then, uh, we're praying for you guys. Ask that you pray for us. Uh, St. Fidelis, St. Thomas More, Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. And we will see you guys on the next one. Peace. <laughs>